Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast. This is May 28th, 2015, and this is the Islamic State and Gay Marriage Edition. We're coming to you from the University of Birmingham. I'm Adam Quinn, a senior lecturer in international politics. With me are the people who I hope will be my regular co-hosts over the course of many editions to come. First, Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello, Kristala. Hello, Adam. Hello, world. And uh, Scott Lucas, a professor of international politics and editor of news and analysis site EA Worldview. Hello, Scott. Good day, everybody. This week, we're going to be talking about a couple of topics already given away in the title of the episode. First, about the onward march of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Why does nobody seem to be able to stop it? And should the United States or other Western powers be trying rather harder to do so? Second, about the triumph of marriage equality in a nationwide referendum in the Republic of Ireland, not just to say well done to them, but to ask where this fits with unfolding global trends on the issue. On to our first topic. Let's, uh, let's dig in. First, the so-called Islamic State, the extreme fundamentalist and radical Sunni Islamist group, even by the standards of fundamentalist Sunni Islamist groups that had previously established itself in control of significant territory in both Iraq and Syria, advanced yet further during May, taking control of the city of Ramadi in Iraq and sparking fears that it might expand further still at the expense of governments in Baghdad and Damascus. This comes despite recent declarations of American success in targeting and wounding or killing senior figures within the movement. Why is this happening? Can anything be done about it? Should anything be done about it if that something means more being done by the United States and being done militarily? So I suspect if we could answer all these questions definitively, we would be earning more money working for someone else. But let's give it our very best go, shall we? Scott. Well, you have the Islamic State, which is being treated as somehow being cured when you swat a mosquito in the swamp, say, with U.S. Special Forces uh, killing uh, one of their mid-level personnel in Syria. But the point is that you've only swatted a mosquito. Unless you actually deal with the problems on the ground in Syria and in Iraq, you are just simply in, in a continuous process. And the fact is, is that I don't think the United States, especially in Syria, but arguably in Iraq, is getting to grips with the fundamental issues. But having said that, I think too often... It's looked at as, well, the U.S. has to come in and solve it, or shouldn't the U.S. do something? The fact is, is that this is a failure at many levels. It's a failure within these countries. It's a failure in the region. And it's a failure in the international community. I know that doesn't give you any answers, but at least it expands beyond the headlines which just simply is a snapshot, winning or losing versus the bad guys. I mean, the, uh, the, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, got himself quite a lot of attention in the headlines during the course of this week by basically saying and being supported by, uh, by military officers as well that they weren't uh, driven the Iraqi army out of Ramadi, mm. but they uh, drove themselves out of Ramadi. And the suggestion is that this is a crisis of the will to some extent, that the Iraqi army, the Iraqi state, is simply not willing or not capable of fighting at the same level or with the same enthusiasm or with the same devotion to the cause as the Islamic State are. And that disparity of interest in winning this conflict uh, is, is, is what lies at the root of it, which would seem to feed into a broader narrative of what's going on in the region, which is that these states, like Iraq, like Syria, are not entities that have existed for an enormously long time, and for the length of time they have existed, there's been a degree of artificiality to them as political entities. People's willingness to 
uh, devote themselves with passion to them as entities to fight and die for them is less than their attachment to other different kinds of identity like their particular religious group or subgroup or their tribal affiliation. And it would seem that since the American government's decapitation of the Iraqi state in 2003 and the cascade of events that followed from that, these kind of identities have re-emerged even more virulently and that there is a, uh, a great incapacity on the part of the existing official political entities to sustain themselves uh, based on that enthusiasm gap between the people who actually need to fight these conflicts uh, um, uh, in their identification with one thing uh, and another. Well, let's cut to the chase. If you had an effective Iraqi government for all the population in that country, not just for Shia, not just for Kurds, not just for Sunnis, we don't see this happen. The solution to Ramadi and before that, Mosul, which the Islamic State took last year, has to come out of Baghdad with the idea that you have an effective national government. And the problem with Ashton Carter's statement, the Secretary of Defense is, is that simply by passing the blame across to the Iraqi military, which is true, they folded, but it doesn't do anything to get to that fundamental question, because let's be honest, the U.S. really doesn't know exactly what it's going to do at this moment with that fundamental question of governance. But let me add something else as well, because I want to put the Americans on the hook on a specific reason, not to say that they're the solution, but they are part of the problem here. One way of dealing with the Islamic State, if you are serious about it in a tactical way, is, is that you start to defeat them in Syria. Because the fact is, is that if you do that, it limits the number of fighters, the number of resources that they can move across into Syria, into Iraq to fight there. But the United States has for years dallied over what it wants to do in Syria. And even when it intervened with aerial action last autumn, it did not deal with the fundamental opportunity as well as challenge. And that is, there are ground forces, the Syrian opposition, rebels, whatever you want to call them, who are opposed to the Islamic State. You can work with these groups. And more importantly, if you are serious, you can make an example in Syria of no-fly zones and safe havens where people can create their own governments and begin to develop it. And President Obama and top advisors have shrunk away from that challenge. So it's a combination of U.S. indecision as well as deeper problems that are beyond just simply the Americans saying tomorrow, okay, now we're going to act and everything will be solved. Because it won't just be the Americans involved. It will be Iraqis and it will be other governments such as, let it be said, the Iranians who are going to have to be part of any type of long-term solution to the crisis. Before any of that, there's also talk, I know it's been floating for a while, but there's also talk of a NATO intervention, particularly around Iraq and some of that kind of concern concern around a corridor towards Baghdad. And does that complicate things at all? Well, let me put the question back to you, and that is, from your perspective, mm. do you think, when we talk NATO intervention, so we're talking about foreign troops from a number of countries, yeah. both aerial and ground forces, do you think most of the Iraqi people would be happy to see that type of foreign intervention on that scale? Do you think that the concerns of the Iraqi people are going to be taken into, into consideration at this stage? And that's a genuine question, not a cynical one. Do you think having that there's lessons that have been learned from the last decade or so that means that the considerations of, of people living in the country are going to be heard or listened to more carefully? Well, 
let me step it back from a practical point of view, and that is that... We just keep going backwards, yeah. Well, yeah, arguably we have this is, this is question tennis. Rhetorical hypothesis and One step back, half step forward. I don't know how, if we advance, but NATO's not going to intervene in that fashion. Mm. Okay, and the Americans are not going to put ground troops in beyond special forces because they're completely hesitant after what happened in 2003, which was a disaster. Yeah. But that gets back to your wider question. After 2003, they did not have the support of the Iraqi people. They alienated the Iraqi people because they tried to basically impose a government from outside upon them. Will they consider what's happening with the Iraqi people now? I actually think they're going to have to consider Iraqi groups, but actually for an ironic position, and that is because if you look at what the Iranians are doing, whatever you think of Iranian foreign policy, the Iranians who have intervened militarily and political uh, politically, have done so on the basis of connections with Iraqi groups, mm -hmm. not just the Iraqi government, but various Shia religious groups, various cultural groups, as well as with militias. Right. So interestingly, the Iranian approach has been more grounded or rooted. At, at least in the areas where it's intervened. Now, the test for the Iranian approach, as well as the test for the Iraqi forces with Shia militias, is when they move into mainly Sunni areas. So, for example, you can hold Baghdad with this, mm. but if you talk about Anbar province, where Ramadi is, this town, the city that just fell, that's what the second largest province in Iraq, mm. mainly Sunni population, uh, has had a resentment for years of what it sees as a Shia-led government that discriminates, that denies jobs, yeah. that denies justice, and I don't think the Iranians are going to be able to step in and, and turn that around. The question is whether there is some form of outreach to those local Sunni groups. I can tell you there was a token effort made as Ramadi was falling in that you had the provincial council for Anbar that went and met the U.S. ambassador. The U.S. ambassador, or at least the Americans, spun it as, oh, we now have their support to do something. We will consider this, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that's, that's surface. That's PR at this point. Yeah, I mean, it seems to come back to this question of, is the Iraqi people still a meaningful collective entity? Mm. Is Iraq still in the game as a savable, salvageable political project? Because there is this government in Baghdad that is, in a sense, the holder of sovereign authority within that territory. But part of why we are where we are right now is because they have been seen not inaccurately as the representative and the agent of one section of that population. The Kurdish population, although still notionally uh, allied with that government, effectively are so because they operate their own affairs almost entirely autonomously within their sphere. And the Islamic State has now effectively imposed a sort of de facto sovereignty on the part of a lot of the Sunni population. And they grew out of the fact that that Sunni population had no confidence whatsoever that the government in Baghdad now, tomorrow, or at any point would begin to be anything other than a sectarian agent of its own interests at their expense. Now, that has a long history behind it of Saddam Hussein's government favoring that population over the other sections of the population. So it, we didn't start from nowhere a few years ago. But the idea that this uh, 20th century entity that is the state of Iraq that cuts across these sorts of lines and expects people to identify with it and unify in spite of those long-standing divisions, if that was ever uh, something that could be made the primary driving force of identity and political commitment in this part of the world, it seems like we're a lot further away from that than we, than we, than we have been for some time. I think that there's all of that, and then if we take a step back to the more basic, I'd like to take us back to something that Scott said previously, which is 
we're talking about meeting basic social needs as well, basic social infrastructural needs. And in addition to the questions about identity and allegiance and so on, there's on the ground, if, if your government isn't able to provide you with running water, electricity, safety, education, hmm. uh, all of those things, then that opens space for organisations like Daesh, like the, the Islamic State. And that's something that I think is is we 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 talk about we talk about viable or unviable non non viable governments, but um, but the question is also what sits underneath this. Mm. And so long as that insecurity continues, there's always going to be space for for whatever entity is going to provide basic levels of of safety mm. and security. Yeah, and I mean the underlying problem may not lie with a lack of capacity on the part of the Baghdad government to provide for all of its population. It may go back to that question of who they see their allegiances as lying to and who they see their constituency as being. But um, I don't think it's that uh, uh, Nouri al-Maliki's government in Baghdad tried but sadly failed mm. to provide for the interests of the Sunni population. I agree with your academic analysis, but there's a danger in thinking academically. Well, you basically have defined the question in sectarian terms. You haven't defined it in terms of services for all, yeah. responsibility for all, justice for all. And you know the consequences of that are, and we've seen it in other countries before. You have, in the Sunni areas, a minority Shia population, which is going to be forced with the choice of either leaving or facing discrimination. And you have the reverse in Shia majority areas with a minority Sunni population. And what do you then do with Baghdad? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it, Baghdad effectively becomes a completely contested ground. And there is no way in any fragmentation of Iraq that you can fragment Baghdad. So I think that proposal, which interestingly the US Congress has jumped on or some have jumped on, makes the situation worse rather than giving you a solution. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure I would elevate it to the level of a proposal. You flatter me a little by uh, mm. by suggesting that it is more uh, an expression of despair in a way that that, that yes, if it was I mean, I suppose one of the things we want to talk about is the uh, the role that outsiders can play in dealing with this situation, what the United States could do to fix the situation. Where the, the U.S. government seems to be right now is that what they would like to do is support and resource and help a government in Baghdad with goodwill yeah. to create a pluralistic uh, state that provides for the interests of all of its citizens and that will also then be the agent of defeating these uh, uh, radical uh, backward-looking, anti-American, anti-most things forces. The question, the big question, is whether or not that government has anything resembling the capacity to do that, and no matter how well-resourced it may be by outsiders or by the United States, whether its heart is really in making itself the spear tip for that kind of uh, action, or whether ultimately, no matter how well-resourced they are by outside powers, they will see their interest as being in hunkering down with their own constituency uh, to defend their own, their own baseline rather than pursuing what many of them probably see as the quixotic project yeah. of trying to build the American idea of a pluralistic, unified Iraq up. I mean, it, that's, that's the, the, the baseline. They say we will empower Prime Minister Alabadi, we will give him resources to try to rebuild the military, to try to provide political services and social services. But you have two problems here. One is, is that the Prime Minister, Alabadi, who is genuinely see as, as having the goodwill to pursue this, he's in an emergency situation. And every time you try to make this fundamental stuff that you have to make, 
If you wind up having the Islamic State take over a city like Ramadi or killing scores of Iraqi troops, which they did in an incident near a dam recently in Anbar province, then everybody jumps on him and says he can't rule effectively. So one's the question of getting time and space. But two, the, the poison of the al-Maliki government, so the prime minister who was there for six years, uh, from 2008 to 2014, possibly even longer, is that because of his rule, which was so divisive, which was seen as favoring, in all cases, not just a Shia majority, but his own Shia, led to corruption, favoritism, discrimination throughout the whole system. And you're going to have to find a space in Baghdad for leading figures from all communities to feel like they can sit down and negotiate from a blank slate. Let's be honest, that's something you can talk about that we should do, but practically you know that it is going to be extremely contested. Mm. Um, I think at best right now what you're talking about is a containment strategy, and, and that is, is that you contain the uh, danger of the Islamic State at this point, that you keep the economy running, mm -hmm. that you try to show that you keep services running to all, and then if you can get that very small, very small but essential step, then you can start to build upon that. Let's let's move over to the question of Daesh or the Islamic State, um, because because we're seeing it as a growing, as a, a rapidly expanding and constantly expanding entity. Is it really? Is it really as strong as it's portrayed? There's a lot more. There's a lot more crumbling around the edges that I seem to be hearing about, particularly now, and. Uh, and there's also there's a lot of interesting internal kind of struggle and hierarchies that I don't know we necessarily hear about, particularly tensions between international fighters and more regional, local, local fighters, the way that they're treated internally, the kind of resentments that that's building up. So the entity of, of Daesh is not this monolithic, constantly expanding force. If you actually step it back a few weeks, the Islamic State had lost to Crete in, central, in northern Iraq, which was a key city they'd taken last year. Uh, they were defeated by a combined Iraqi force, Shia militias, with some discreet American support, including air support that took place. In Syria, they're getting their butts kicked. Mm. In the north and in the east of the country, they've been defeated at times by the Kurds. They have faced setbacks uh, from the rebels. And even in a more limited occasions from President Assad's army. Yeah. So, in fact, it's it's it is a very mixed picture on their on their military success. But I think there's a wider question you point to. The Islamic State only succeeds if it can govern effectively in the long run. Yeah. So that's where your, your word was containment. I guess that might be where the logic of a strategy like that kicks in. That if you hold the line to some extent, prevent them. Uh, expanding into genuinely unacceptable territory, then you potentially allow the internal contradictions or the difficulties that might exist within the Islamic State to reach critical uh, velocity, critical something at some point anyway, and, and the dysfunctions that exist there uh, to become the stuff of its own unraveling. Yeah. The, the debate that's going on in the United States at the moment as uh, you might expect uh, with the Republican Party primaries coming up and with the Republican Party's foreign policy community being engaged with it, is focusing a lot on the question of American intervention, on the kind of intervention that America might carry out, and especially on the question of whether maybe boots on the ground might be necessary. At the moment, the United States 
has very much settled upon a strategy of trying to support local actors to the maximum possible extent and deploy air power in a strategic and supporting way, maybe take out individual figures who are considered to be dangerous with some kind of swift special forces led in and out operation. But President Obama, at least, has been extremely standoffish about any kind of talk of putting in uh, American ground troops. There are certainly those in the Republican Party who are beginning to talk increasingly loudly about the possible need to put in troops. If you send American troops back in there, that will be what's required to provide the kind of military defeat that so clearly local actors are not able to provide. But... What then is the big question that hangs over me and presumably over President Obama that then you have the United States present in this territory which it has cleared, where it has defeated the Islamic State, where you have a very divided country with many cross-cutting identities, a lot of grievances, some legitimate, some illegitimate, and the United States then owns all of that once again and the security situation once again. So I guess my question is can we all agree that whatever the right thing to do is Barack Obama's probably got good instincts when he's not keen on sending in American troops right now, even though that might achieve a short-term result of sorts. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think... Yes, but... The Republicans, or some of the Republicans who are shouting for ground troops on the ground, including the good folks at the Wall Street Journal, including uh, certain Republican presidential candidates, they're not doing this because they give a good... They thought this through strategically, or that they give a damn about the Iraqi people. They're doing it because they think it sounds good in 2016 in the presidential election. Mm. Secondly, the so-called 2007-2008 surge, which mythically supposedly had rebuilt Iraq, the only thing the surge did effectively was provide a pretext for American troops to get the hell out two to three years later and to say we had some kind of victory. You on, uh, you on team no, Christo? I'm on team no. I'm on team, team no, and we'll leave it. We can leave it there. I thought you had a but. <laughs> <laughs> I had a but, dot, dot, dot. And my, my broader but is we need to really rethink these short-term, long-term engagement strategies, and we really need to think very carefully about how trust and relationships are rebuilt on the ground, how infrastructure is rebuilt, how faith in government is rebuilt, how all of these happened in, in the next, how they, all the thing, these things are going to happen, assuming that, best case scenario, there is some kind of stability over the next 30 or 40 years. And we need a long-term engagement, a long-term vision that is so entirely absent because we're focusing on, on just military options at the moment, necessarily. But we need a rethinking, otherwise we're just going to be doing Groundhog Day all of the time in all of these conflicts. Yeah, it's Groundhog Day all over again. Mm -hmm. uh, to paraphrase Yogi Berra. Okay, item one, I hereby declare, is done. <laughs> On May 22nd, the Republic of Ireland became the first country to legalise same-sex marriage via nationwide popular vote. Uh, in voting yes, it joins 20 other countries that have uh, uh, put same-sex marriage on the books with a number of others to follow. The United States has gay marriage legal in 36 of its states at the moment, with a much-awaited Supreme Court decision coming later this year on whether or not that must become nationwide. What should we make of this good news trend? Is it just pure blue, sunny sky as far as the eye can see, or are there any clouds on the horizon of this issue um, at home or abroad? I think in terms of positive kind of uh, riding the waves of this 
enthusiasm from Ireland uh, and looking just at the Western world. The Australian um, opposition, the Labour government, has introduced um, a marriage equality bill to Parliament. The comment of the, um, of the person who tabled it, Minister Perrett, said that it's certainly time if the Conservative Poms and Kiwis, and now the Irish have beaten us to it, it's starting to get embarrassing. So mm. the Australian Labour, at least, is on, is, on, is on par with this, saying that, come on, if these guys in, in, in Europe are doing this, it's, it's time we got onto it as well. And interestingly, if that doesn't pass, there have been some suggestions that a cross-party bill is tabled. So despite what is, I think, a trend, a very conservative government in Australia, an extremely conservative government with a prime minister that is that has repeatedly said that he is personally against gay marriage uh, and several of his ministers saying exactly the same thing, there is now support and seemingly mm. cross-party support for this bill. Yeah. Which means that perhaps some of that enthusiasm has kind of spread out and maybe there's, maybe it's not a trend, but maybe there's a window for some some of the, the the beneath the surface beneath the surface action that's been that's been going on the lobbying for the last decade or so mm. to kind of push now in in these respective governments for um, legislation supporting legislation and it's become it's become one of those issues now where although it is far from unanimous that everyone has the same position on it you can feel a sense of growing unanimity about the direction of travel yeah. so that when conservative politicians are talking about it, although they do feel the need to make a gesture towards what they perceive to be the view of their, their, their base, you can hear the cogs whirring in their minds as they think, well, in 20 years' time, this is probably going to sound like someone talking about interracial marriage or mm. something like that. And I really don't want to be that guy side. or that woman who has a track record of saying the wrong thing. So people are trying to find a way to say enough to satisfy their base if they're on the right. But being increasingly aware of the fact that this is not going to go their way ultimately. And they need to tailor what they say with an eye on, on history. And even in the case of the legal battles in the United States at the moment, that atmosphere seems to have come over the Supreme Court at the moment as well, that the justices who are looking at writing a judgment about whether or not gay marriage is a constitutional right and needs to be universalized are clearly thinking on some level, do I want to be the one who writes an opinion that says that that is the case, or do I want to be the person who wrote the opinion that says that it's not the case and make the kind of arguments that would be required to say it's not the case? knowing and feeling on some level that this is going to look really, really, really bad, yeah. not that far down the line. The reason why gay and lesbian lifestyles came into the mainstream in America was about 20 years ago, when because of the advertising dollar, you could see the beginnings of programs that didn't present gays and lesbians as being camp or butch and evil menaces. I remember Will and Grace basically coming on screen and thinking, oh my gosh, what's happened here? So I think the fact that money talks will overcome this resistance of the states at a, a state level. To, but it just makes me cautious at this idea that we have this moral progress everywhere and that it will progress mm -hmm. to take it to another area of the world. And that is, even as we talk about this, which should be applauded, remember that you have many communities, including the 
Church of England, the Episcopal Church, and the United States, who were basically torn apart by the issue of gay rights because of Africa. And that the setback for gay rights in Africa has been significant over the past generation. Mm -hmm. So a couple steps forward, but always beware that there's always that possible step back, whether it comes from Alabama or whether it comes possibly from somewhere like Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, this, this is the other reason why I thought it might be worth putting this on as a topic, because although we are in a somewhat celebratory mood, those of us who care about this issue in this part of the world, um, we shouldn't get to assuming in any casual way that this is a trend that's sweeping the globe uh, by any means. If you look at other places, Russia, parts of Africa, uh, the Middle East, um, you know, there are people there who are strongly opposed on a very large scale and if anything possibly more explicit and ideological perhaps under the pressure of perceived widening acceptance of it in in other places and in some circles uh, uh, than they were before uh, which means that at the same time as it's becoming perhaps less of a divisive issue between western elites uh, there is potential for this to become more of a divisive issue on a global level. But that interaction that you're talking about is, is very real in, in very specific ways. Uh, and to give one, just one very small example, and, and perhaps not the best one, I mean, donor, donor countries bring that agenda to, to, the, to the state that they're working in. And LGBT rights funding has been the thing for the last few years. And... And a whole lot of development aid is tied to progress on e on issues, legislative progress, and then in kind of on the ground progress as well to these issues. And those so donor aid is being withdrawn and blocked in some of those cases. In a situation like that, is it possible to pull back from an image of confrontation over the issue to one where you can continue to slowly, possibly? actually try to just advance step by step in countries like these? I think it's possible. Is there a mindset among people who are decision makers and among agenda setters that the, that the slowly bit by bit way, the, the quietly forward way of making progress is, is the way to do things or is a way of doing things that might be less abrasive? And when an issue has become so politicised, as this one has, and so many people have put their stake in the ground very visibly, it mm. takes some very subtle and very good policies and very good people to be able to start undoing those, those threads. But I think that's a question. That, that's a space where I wonder if international actors, you know, we refer basically to the church or to religious groups, yeah. um, whether they're other type of non-government organisations, if they just simply set an example by saying, look, tolerance, acceptance, et cetera, whether we begin to make that advance. I mean, it, to make this a specific one, that's what has really bothered me a little bit about the, the division between the Episcopal uh, Church, the Church of England. You know, the fact is you can make a real difference mm. if you would simply come out with a statement which didn't say we're forcing this upon everybody, but basically we believe in tolerance, we believe in compassion. And the church has been very reluctant to do that. Mm. And, and I understand the politics behind it. But I just think it's a case where look, these symbolic markers become important. And as I said, I, you know, <laughs> if you can link up marks with this issue, I think at the end of the day, the fact is, is that a lot more money is going to be tied to yeah. recognition of uh, LBG, uh, LGBT rights. 
Um, and, I, and I think it, you'll even see that expanding out of the zone that we're talking about in the U.S. and Western Europe. But as with these things, it always takes time. And it is, I think, to come back to a point that Adam made earlier, that that is going to be dependent. Those, those symbolic moves by, say, the church or churches yeah. or, or symbolic leaders, cultural leaders, depends on them working out internal differences. And you see that as an example. Look at the Vatican. The, the Pope has come out and said, you know, this is not... This is, he said something like, um, who am I to judge about gay marriage specifically? Yeah. And yet, the other day, his his essential to IC came out and said that the that the vote in Ireland was a loss for all of humanity. Mm. So there's this discrepancy that is being played out in the so space is opened and space is closed again, and that's the discrepancy that you see being played out in the public kind of sphere. Well, well maybe in a provocative end to this, let me throw this back to both of you all, which is one thing that I'm not sure was asked about the Irish result is whether in fact, this very hopeful sign came about in part because of a disillusionment with the church, whether the scandals that have surrounded the church mm. in what had always been seen as a predominantly staunch Catholic country had actually opened up the space to say perhaps the Catholic church is wrong on this one. And we saw basically the culmination, or at least in part culmination of that last week. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm from Dublin originally. It's been some time, uh, uh, but I still have my sources um, and I, I think it certainly does reflect uh, what in the cosmological timescale has been a very rapid decline in, in, in the churches, say so. Um, religious institutions still had the capacity to have a, a close to or perhaps actually decisive effect in these sorts of referendums, mm. which there have been in Ireland on numerous social issues such as divorce and, and, and abortion over recent decades, up until quite recently, whereas this time round, uh, possibly shaped by the background noise of various scandals that have been about church behaviour, not least uh, in the management of uh, ch children's homes and such things, um, over the course of recent years, uh, the, the, there's been a, a collapse in that ability of the Catholic Church to persuade people to have their views on these issues determined by its pronouncements, and possibly even the emergence in metropolitan areas, at least, of the opposite effect, mm. that if a religious uh, office holder pronounces on this issue in a way that suggests they have an expectation that this will shape how people vote, mm. a phalanx of people descend upon them immediately uh, to almost call them out for their uh, uh, lack of standing on the issue and for their presumptuousness in imagining that they should have the right to have that kind of say, which is night and day compared to, to, to where things used to be. Um, so, yes, I would certainly... I wouldn't necessarily say that people would have voted in favour of gay marriage just to have a go at the church and to prove a point, but the church's blocking power when it comes to social liberalism has fallen away at an almost unimaginably fast rate. The one thing I would say in addition, I guess, is that um, if there is any, and I'm very glad that Ireland didn't embarrass anybody, me included, because uh, uh, I kind of felt that level of relationship with the vote by voting the way it did. And it's remarkable how fast this issue has changed. There is a part of me uh, as a kind of across the spectrum progressive issues guy um, that wonders if part of why marriage equality has become this touchstone issue across the spectrum, the one that not just is uh, a beloved of liberals, but which conservatives find it easy converting to, is that it's kind of a free one, as it were, when it comes to extending 
uh, a gesture in the direction of of liberal progress. That it's a case where you can give something to a group without taking anything in particular away from another group um, by expanding rights. It's a little bit uh, 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 easier for that reason than many of the other issues that are part of the kind of uh, liberal coalition's objective set to do with uh, uh, equality and fairness, etc., because they tend to have some kind of economic component. They tend to require a degree of sacrifice on the part of one part of the population in order to make whole or make good whatever the perceived lack is in another part. And uh, the ability to be seen to be making a gesture in the direction, and, uh, uh, you know, it's a very good gesture and one that should be welcomed uh, of... Uh, the liberal progressive side of politics without having to confront some of those more difficult issues where you take something away from somebody who will resent it more, uh, more, more aggressively for that reason hangs in the back of my mind as to why this should not be taken necessarily as a, one part of a public move towards endorsement of a liberal or progressive agenda wholesale. It's a very good thing, but it strikes me as potentially quite a limited thing in terms of what it says about the direction of travel in politics more generally. It is extremely limited, but I, I think I'd add to that, don't underestimate the importance of moral loss, and, and this couldn't have happened, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and, and yes, there isn't, there isn't clear kind of economic loss, but the, but the number of, the, the amount of work that's been done or the number of, of, of people who have been staunchly against this and feel some kind of moral loss if, mor if, if marriage equality were to exist, mm. um, that, has, that had to change in order for this very narrow, very small thing to have, to have been able to happen. Mm. I think so. So really, I would say just don't underestimate the 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 weight of moral something. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm looking for a reason I to be know, disappointed about it. But that's the thing. Like, rather than just, but, but, but rather than just go, this is awesome. Everybody's in favor of this good thing. No, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't I'm, mean I'm, to yeah, simplify. I'm looking to pick. It was, uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'll take, I'll, 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 you're absolutely well, I right. I wasn't waving a pen at you. Yeah. But can we, I want to focus just for a minute on the idea that we did it, that that Ireland did this as a referendum because I think that's mm. really interesting. Um, Shoot. No, I just wanted to to bring it. That to was the you table. That was my point. It was okay. it was done by referendum, and I think I think that that I mean referendums are historically conservative things. People tend to vote in favour of the status quo, which could speak to your argument about this not having a kind of broader cost, so it being a, a free win as such. Mm. But um, but doing this by referendum, I think, is a really really interesting move, and the whole social media campaign that went around that particularly mm. the one that was most visible to me was the kind of diaspora community. So that coming back to vote thing, I think that was that was a really interesting approach to this kind of yeah. campaign. And the relationship between it and democracy yeah. is, is, is at the heart of the arguments going on in the United States because hanging over the whole affair is Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that uh, uh, discovered in the Constitution the right to abortion. Um, at least the narrative that is mainstream now about that decision is that the fact that it was made not by an elected legislative body but by a court and then imposed upon parts of the country where you couldn't have got that done legislatively provoked a backlash 
that means that it to this day is a much more divisive and politicized issue than it otherwise would be. Now, there are counter arguments to that that would suggest that anti-abortion politics and activism was revving up anyway, regardless of the decision. And also that the decision was just the right thing to do. And, you know, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't not do the right thing because you're worried about a backlash. But if you have the choice between getting these things done legislatively and with majority votes as opposed to through courts, uh, some would draw the lesson of Roe versus Wade to be that you should prefer the legislative route because it has less potential to be caricatured as a, uh, or as a conservative would put it accurately, characterized as a decision handed down from on high uh, uh, from an unrepresentative body and then everyone else is just told to stick it. Horses for courses. Um, the, if you counted on referendum and counted on um, the enlightened society, you wouldn't have had civil rights moving that quickly in the United States in the 1950s, 1960s. You had to have the Supreme Court decision to desegregate schools, Brown versus Board of Education. Um, I think the fault lay not in Roe versus Wade. The fault laid in that something within American society, which can be a very polarized society, didn't see the wisdom of that decision and in some respects didn't do so today. The Irish case is different. It's not for me to come in and say there should be an Irish court to rule on this. The Irish body, the decision was to go to a referendum. I generally don't trust referendum. Mm. I think they usually lead to bad things. Uh, but That's this, what's so interesting about this. Yeah, exactly. it, it does, because it, it, what's interesting is this, is that quite often we see this wave of, as it were, this fervor, this moral fervor being seen as, I'm going to say, as a reactionary thing, right? At least coming where I come from in the States. We want to roll things back. We want to roll civil rights back, affirmative action. We think that the gays are taking over the country. Uh, there is a sentiment here that if you have a referendum on Britain coming out of Europe next week, every reactionary here is going to come back and take us back to the 19th century economically in this little island of ours. So I don't trust them. In this case, Ireland, though, whether it was calculated by the politicians in advance, whether it's a case of a society coming together, this was a progressive thing. Mm. So I said horses for courses. Approach it politically and not say it's either the legislature or the people or the courts that are going to be the breakthrough on this. You have, it comes in different ways at different points. Mm. And I mean, in Ireland, uh, they didn't really have a choice in, in, in the sense that the constitution there is written uh, in such a way as to make any change to it require a referendum, and they seem to have encompassed uh, a, a wide array of things within that constitution. We normally encounter this in the context of... Uh, um, European treaties because they're they're always the country that causes problems because they need to have a, a referendum before they can amend anything for that purpose. But also, as I said, on various social issues like abortion uh, and like divorce, uh, which I remember being a, being a big one. Um, the fact that the constitution seems to incorporate a range of these issues in a way that isn't the case in other places has forced it into that channel. And let's just have one other thing that you just mentioned, which is thank God for a European court human rights, thank God that there's an umbrella which is there, which allows expression of popular opinion and the legislature to exist with a judicial framework. Thank God that David Cameron can't even push through basically a British Human Rights Act because we've had that change. We've got that European umbrella. That gives you a space within which this could happen. Again, I'm not saying that the Irish would have voted this way if there had been no European Court on Human Rights. But it has changed the political context hugely to have that court in place, as opposed to the 1980s, when Margaret Thatcher thought she could run roughshod over such rights. Mm. And long may it continue, or will it, 
That, that, is, that, mm. that, that, that is the question. Stay tuned for more discussion on this. Yeah. Okay, I think we set the world to rights. Thank you very much. I'm Adam Quinn. My co-hosts have been Cristala Yakinthu and Scott Lucas. Our producer is Connor McKenna. And you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We hope to be back in a couple of weeks' time. We very much hope you will be too. 